Welcome to The Small Podcast, where we talk to the people forging careers in and solving the problems of private equity and private equity-backed companies. I'm Jonathan Evans, Marketing Manager for The Small Consultancy, an ex-recruiter of 10 years. With me is Managing Director and Lead Consultant of The Small Consultancy, Caroline Hall. Hi. Today we have Susie McKeown joining us on the podcast. Susie's Chief Product Officer, who's worked with both big blue chip companies like BT and T-Mobile, and private equity-backed companies like EdTech Scale-Up Education Software Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Susie. Hi, Susie. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Susie, before we start, could you just give us a quick introduction to your career and how you got to do what you're doing now? Sure, yes. Well, thank you so much for having me on board today. Um, I've spent over 20 years in tech, started my career in the dot-com era when uh, growth was fast and it was all about the internet and eyeballs if you recall those terms um, i've always had proposition product strategy roles then followed a long period working for t-mobile and uh, bt um, in you know big established corporate again in strategy and proposition and product roles um, and then uh, a strategy role at Smart DCC. This is the, the company that runs the smart metering rollout for the energy sector. And uh, lastly, I was the most senior product person at ESS, formerly a subsidiary of Capita, but it was carved out uh, by a pirate equity firm and uh, merged with another software business, quite a, a turbulent time with a lot of business change. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's something we'll definitely touch on is is navigating change, I guess, from the product mm. function, um, particularly as a lot of people will be, as you say, going going one way and we'll be doing the scale-up piece, but doing the carve-out piece is a whole different set of challenges, I guess, would be yeah. really interested to, mm. to get your take on that. Um, I mean, you mentioned there, obviously, you, you've covered quite the you know the scale in terms of companies from big blue chip corporates down to the the you know the, the carve outs in your experience what's the main difference between working for you know within product in those large companies versus a small p backed company sure i mean my experience is just a snapshot which may not be representative of what other people feel but uh, clearly at bt you've got a very established plc with a heritage going back over a hundred years, you know, this as a, as a beast, if you like, is quite mm. different mm. from a private equity backed software company that only had maybe 30 years um, on its, on, on its shoulders, which for a software company is actually quite old already. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but also in terms of size and ownership, um, you know, a world of difference BT with closer to a hundred thousand employees and, ESS with several hundred employees, right? Um, but I think reflecting on what actually makes the difference um, in terms of day-to-day decision-making um, is the risk appetite. A big established business of the stature of BT has perhaps a different measure of risk being a listed business mm -hmm. and being so active in so many industries, in so many product areas, in so many customer segments and has conflicting priorities perhaps to juggle. Whereas a smaller business such as ESS is actually quite focused and under the PE ownership um, is able to gauge risk in a different way. And therefore decision-making, whether when it comes, for example, for investments tends to happen a little bit faster and perhaps mm. a bit more gutsy as well. I would say those are the, the main differences. Um, and for me as a product person, it also meant that in the smaller business that was P carved out by a PE firm, you know, there was much more direct contact with the investors than in mm. BT with, uh, you know, hundreds of perhaps thousands of different shareholders where I, I, I wouldn't be able to to influence the, the shareholder base in that way. So mm. it probably goes without saying really, but uh, I, you know, that makes a big difference for uh, running a team in the one environment versus the other. Yeah, that, uh, that's really interesting. And I will, we'll touch on the team 
bit in a minute, but you mentioned there, obviously, you know, in one way, you have a lot of different things happening within the bigger companies, which could mean, I guess, a wider portfolio of products. But then in the smaller one, you said it's more focused, but there's potentially more innovation because they're more nimble and, you know, they're more likely to make a decision quicker. Did, do you find that sort of on the ground within product? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, one of the, one of the um, I guess, aspects of this carve-out of ESS out of Capita was mm -hmm. the, the PE firm that we were working with specialised in carving out uh, units mm -hmm. of PLCs that perhaps previously have been underinvested in with a view mm -hmm. to then really invest in them to scale them and to, to fetch bigger multiples as they then make mm -hmm. an exit a few years down the line. Um, and as a product person, it was a wonderful opportunity to work in the opening years of this PE firm's ownership um, in this business when, when so much was about rectifying tech debt, perhaps uh, getting on the front foot again with the product development, but also with the, the resourcing behind it you know, transforming mm -hmm. a product team, growing it in terms of the numbers, but also changing perhaps its shape to suit the new direction better um, mm -hmm. and also professionalizing it in the way that, uh, that it was made up of different sub-disciplines within the sort of product mm -hmm. church, if you like. And uh, that sort of recruitment drive felt very different mm -hmm from previous um, recruitment engagements I've, I've, um, I was involved in at, at BT, for example, where you first of all have to understand your headcount and budget position. And often these are conflicting numbers, one held by HR and one by finance. Whereas in the PE business, it doesn't matter so much, those parameters, mm -hmm. what's important is, or in our case, it was important to, to actually get going on new product development really very quickly and time was of the essence, not so much some of the figures that they seemed to be more in the rounding, at least in the early stages of the PE investors' um, ownership. Um, I mean, if people listen to this and going through that sort of carve-out process, what would be your advice and how to shape that team? Well, the first thing is, um, and I guess, those of the listeners who are in the product discipline, we look at product market fit when it comes to a product. We design the product to fit the needs of the market. And when you set up your product function, it's actually not different. You, you tailor the function to the needs of the business in this case. So for us at ESS, at that junction, it was mm -hmm. all about making sure that we were set up to, to achieve two things. One is to um, secure, I guess, the a sensible level of investment in our legacy portfolio, whilst at the same time creating the space and the sort of financial oxygen to invest quite heavily in new product development and, and do the sort of two tracks at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. That was a big, big challenge there. Mm -hmm. So if somebody, if you went into a company and somebody said, we need you, we, we're looking to scale this particular product portfolio, you can have all the budget in the world to do this. <laughs> uh, what ideal structure would you put in for a product function? Again, um, John, it really depends on the stage of your business. Mm. In the mm -hmm. early part of my career, I worked in a startup company, and this is when you didn't actually want job descriptions and structure because the shape of the business changed weekly. <laughs> we were learning so yeah. fast about our latest customers, which we still knew <laughs> almost, you know, by name <laughs> in the early days. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and we learned so much. Um, in these sort of crazy days when e-commerce was all the rage and was was new and there wasn't really any sort of data to go by um and you know my my job entailed everything from running 
ECRM campaigns and actually coming up with the tooling as well and running database queries. I mean, I've, I'm a business person, but all of a sudden I find myself learning MS Access to some depths mm -hmm. in order to generate mailing lists and then installing a mail server. We, in between, we were moving offices because we grew so much and, uh, you know, we were all very much involved as removals people as well, <laughs> and, uh, and patching, <laughs> patching our computers into the LAN and configuring the patch panel and our telephone mm. extensions. Do you know, this was very much part and parcel of it. And mm. the kind of people who, who work in a startup environment have um, a different attitude perhaps and um, yeah. are quite happy to have this, um, this frequent change and very little is mm. defined and you make yourself mm. useful and you're drawn to the fire. Um, but the more mature the business becomes, the more steady perhaps um, processes have to become. And the more you actually need people who perhaps have more depth than breadth of skills. Um, so certainly, you know, the, the portfolio at uh, ESS was a mature portfolio of services mm -hmm. that had already reached a level of profitability. It was about maximizing that and maximizing the utility of the services to customers in order to, to create a, a bigger customer base and perhaps drive more cross-sell of existing products mm. to, you know, to, to serve customers more holistically with a variety of software tools. That, that you, you can tell that is quite different from the early days of a land mm. grab in many ways that a startup has to go through. Um, and you also have something to lose, right? You have yeah. your existing mm. customer base to lose. Mm. So therefore, perhaps the depth that you want to put into your product function is quite a different one. You know, mm. you'd, you'd want product in software, product managers and product owners to be separate mm. functions for new product development. Mm. You probably also want product designers Again, a very different discipline in the in the world of UX and user interface design, mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, you know the user experience is is uh, uh, is not just acceptable but is fantastic and is addictive. Um, and there is, a, is also a hefty element of commercial, um, I guess, toolkitry <laughs> involved. It's not just about building features on some software. It's also to make sure that the overall proposition to the customer is a sound and also that the commercial model that goes with it the pricing structure the the contract terms um make it an attractive business proposition mm -hmm. for the chooser of the software mm -hmm. which in a business to business context is often different from the user of the software and so you know it helps if you have uh, people therefore who have perhaps done and conquered some of those challenges or similar challenges elsewhere before who have already decided if they want to go into more the detailed feature build or more the commercial side or the design aspect of, of product management. And, you know, in terms of the structure of the team, um, well, I decided to structure it by there's a legacy portfolio and there is a, a new portfolio. The skill sets of both are from a product perspective are perhaps slightly different. Um, also the technology matters. So the legacy portfolio was largely on-prem software with um, three releases a year, much felt much more like waterfall. Whereas, and certainly in mm. BT where, where we managed infrastructure products, that was um, a different kettle of fish that requires different structures and, and processes perhaps. Whereas in new product development and agile software, you know, you, you, if you work to two week sprints and very frequent mm. releases and constant mm. iter iterations of customer feedback, um, again, it perhaps calls for a slightly different persona as a product manager than yeah. those, those folk who, who manage the, the legacy portfolio. I wouldn't want to judge which one is better. You know, the, no. the legacy, the people managing the legacy one have the owners of managing the PL. That's where the money mm. sat. This is the service that everybody consumes and you can't afford a glitch because otherwise your, your hard earned customers will not thank you. Whereas with new product development, you can probably afford to fast fail. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, yes. but of course you've got to, you've got to be very, very quick 
in your decision making, you don't have much time actually to recover either. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's a totally yeah. skill set and mentality, isn't it, with the with the differences? Yeah. Yeah, but also but but perhaps um perhaps I mean we're all a little bit Jekyll and Hyde, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we all we all have different sides to our our yeah. professional persona and maybe also where we are in our career um mm. you know sometimes it feels more natural to be this than that yeah you know and and often it's also the people you work with or the particular product set that you work on just tickles your fancy for whatever reason yeah so again, exactly I wouldn't, wouldn't want to judge but um but yeah. recruiting for recruiting for um those different um teams and functions um required slightly different selection processes and interview questions for example yes yeah yeah especially especially that fail part as well like you were saying you know it's having the evidence of actually that product failed because in interviews you don't want to talk about you want to constantly say oh it was brilliant it worked it was amazing but actually from from that point of view especially the new part you want someone yeah. who's had failure mm. and what they did about it. So it's this kind of, well, as you said, different set of questions. Well, yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's funny. I think as a product um, guild, if you like, you know, us mm. product folk, I think what unites us is that we're incredibly curious. We just have this mm. insatiable appetite to understand customers, to understand business problems mm. to want to problem solve and we're constantly learning every bit mm. of insight and and learning even failure just adds to our armory or our you know whatever you want to call it our our toolkit of um of uh, of of making us a richer product person so failure sounds so very negative but actually yeah. you learn so much mm. From, yeah. from that so we, we mm. there was one product which had um before my time actually been created on the back of a of a pocketon um there was a, a capita initiative a proof of concept thon <laughs> if you see what i mean <laughs> so over over three days or so um people could submit their their software ideas and just have a go very rapidly creating a mm. proof of concept and out of one of those uh, competitions, I guess, um, a, a product came to be. And, uh, but I think, you know, we, we got it wrong. Mm. Perhaps the insight into do customers want this product and do they want it now? And do they want to pay for it? That sort of, you know, the commercial understanding of that um, perhaps was uh, not as developed as some of the code but even with the code do, do you know you know the, mm. the, the techie colleagues also learn something from it on how not to do it and how we would want mm. to do it differently it just adds i i don't see it as a a red mark or something a stain no. on your cv it's no. it's a, as, as long as the candidate can position it as a learning experience and can reflect yeah. and can demonstrate that they can reflect on what they have learned in their various career positions and then what they have done on the back of it and how it has mm. helped them grow then i'm totally happy with it no problem yeah. whatsoever yeah no absolutely yeah. interesting you, you mentioned there as well that there's a few things i'm going to come to in, in, in that so you mentioned their tech tech colleagues obviously have you found the and obviously the seeing as you went you know you, you mentioned there you know you were there at that first kind of dot-com boom have you noticed any differences, you know, with the ways of working with technical teams and product teams over the last few years, you know, with the rise of things like DevOps, you obviously mentioned Agile already. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the, the, the world of programming in the broadest sense is constantly evolving. Um, the programming languages seemingly explode, <laughs> but um, mm. some of the engineering methodologies and principles I would have thought have remained largely constant. I mean, fair enough, so a lot of the tooling has become much more sophisticated. There's been a lot more automation as well. And with that, um, the engineers can focus more on the what we now call value adding side of things. And um, machines and code can actually autocorrect um, mistakes and, 
and test things and standardize things and things are perhaps not as long-winded but uh, but the interaction between product and tech as such um, you know this sort of a times love hate relationship <laughs> where where the product <laughs> person has a vision in mind perhaps the the techies also mm. have a vision and you've got to come together and you've got to sort of be on a journey together i don't think that has changed so much what we have seen that um some of those principles perhaps have been given names and labels um you know we now call it agile we call it SaaS. You know, in the old days, we called it just rapid software development on <laughs> in web, web and e-commerce. You know, um, mm. but 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 the the principles are are pretty pretty universal and haven't changed. And I mean, this is the beauty of um, internet-based technology that mm. you can implement it so very quickly and get a feedback and a result so very quickly. Um, so the, the the barriers to entry are very low. Perhaps this could also be a, a trap, right? That you think, ah, oh, nothing much is lost, hasn't cost so much, but uh, but we can we can uh, plow ahead. So, but I mean, the, the, you know, today though, I have to say, uh, I guess what has become different is is the whole security side. You know, yes, gone are the days when you can just put something out and nobody will ever find it. Uh, on the web, well, that's gone, right? The minute you, you release something, it's <laughs> yeah. indexed and found, and the internet never forgets. And and mm. sadly, you know, where there is a lot of profit to be made on the internet, you also find dubious characters who want to um, sabotage that and mm. use that for their own benefits and and some nasty hacking and and compromising behaviours. Yes, yeah. is, yeah. is sadly, sadly, you know happening whether that's national mm -hmm. sabotage and and hacking at a national scale or or just some some freaks trying their luck and and getting kudos um but mm -hmm. either way that is is hugely damaging and i think the whole security posture and that thinking that consciousness about hey actually what we're doing here is we're building products that house our customers and our users data we've got a responsibility to safeguard that that is is perhaps the one thing I'd tease out that it's much, much more pronounced today than it was 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge sector now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then and I guess also now as a sort of business product people, we're expected to speak that language of tech a little bit more. Mm. You know, we've got to understand mm. those concepts and need to be able to have an educated conversation about it. But it comes organically, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It just comes from spending time in that environment, doesn't it? And having those conversations. Mm. I said, particularly if you're working mm. in that kind of agile, even if it's a hybrid mm. agile environment, you're doing sprints. You're having those conversations more often than you would be potentially, you know, in, in yeah. sort of the traditional models. So, I mean, that's really interesting. And I, I quite like to get your take on almost broadening it out slightly. So how the wider role of, of product management has changed, you know, since that kind of dot-com boom through to now. Um, any other kind of changes, trends that you've noticed? Yeah, the one trend that I'm not seeing, sadly, is a level of professionalization of the product discipline. Mm. When you look at our our peers in finance, for example, you've got the various qualifications that lead up mm. to a finance career. And then you are a finance person with all your accreditations yeah. and memberships. Um, similarly, actually marketing has gone a long way, hasn't it? Mm. With um, the various institutes of chartered mar marketeers where you've yeah. got a stamp. Even sales, I would have thought, you know, once you're a salesperson, you're always a salesperson and everybody gets what a salesperson does. I think product is still at times struggling to get heard at the table, um, sort of seen as a bit of a common sense discipline. Ah, you don't have to do much. You just sort of put a few requirements together and the techies build it. And again, in the technical disciplines, you've got accreditations and qualifications. Once you, yeah, yep. everybody gets what a techie does. 
um, nobody understands how they do it, but <laughs> they, <laughs> they understand and wouldn't question that you need a tech function, but with product, I often mm. find that um, there are still businesses where it's a little bit of an afterthought and, um, and you also have people then career-wise coming back to the whole, you know, what does a product person look like? You still have career paths where people end up in product and they even say this of themselves. I have ended up in product. So a typical career path, maybe that they've been a project manager and they've always managed mm. projects and then have been expected to generate more than just a project plan and actually also mm. direct what gets built and not when by. Mm. Um, or you have people who have done um, systems and process uh, design, um, business analysis. They've, you know, decomposed or um stories and worked out how to engineer something how the business rules on a system that would satisfy the requirement and mm. somehow they've morphed into something in product uh, we still haven't really got a sort of charted institute of product mm. or or a universally accepted description of what a product manager does mm. and how that's different yeah. from a product owner even or yes. um yeah, or, or, or a badge for product in software and product management in infrastructure or in mm -hmm. part, you know, consumer goods, for example. You know, there's, yeah, it's still yeah, no, a little bit. Really... And then also organizationally, we see different, different guises of this. In some organizations, mm. you've got mm. the pro product person very much a central part of the senior management team at the same level as the CTO and the sales and marketing colleagues. In other organizations, it's more like seen as a sub aspect of technology. Yeah. And it sits yes. as part of the technology organization, which yeah. to, to me, I, I don't subscribe to that actually, because I think the product person has to be the voice of the representative of the voice of the customer and mm. is the key person defining what the commercial proposition is for the customer but also how value is derived for the business and to articulate that in a really compelling way. And then seeing through with the help of, of um, project managers, I guess, the development into, in, into the technical organization and then also the market launch into the, the sales and uh, customer success teams. That, that, that for me, actually product is really very central and in mm. mature businesses such as BT, the product manager was, I would say, king, of course, um, and and also PL ownership, no question, sat with product. Yeah. So it's really interesting but, point. But in, yeah. in smaller, younger businesses, I still see um, that vary, tends to vary. That mm. tends to vary. That isn't universally accepted. No, I think, I mean, you're completely right. And I used to. Be, I used to do marketing for one of the companies who I said was one of the front runners for training product managers because there is no, as you said, there is no body no. that kind of does it. And no, so I spend a lot of time hanging out on product management forums, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And even product managers, a lot of the time, their main complaint is, I don't know how to sell my job or my job isn't clearly defined enough where the business is giving me X, Y, Z. And that, sure. you know, that's seems to be just day-to-day -day product managers you say as you said part of that is people have come into it from other disciplines mm. i've never really had a clearly defined role so they are just picking up bits that shouldn't necessarily be in product but have kind of been lumped in with product because it's not seen as up there and then i think as you said the other main fact is the business themselves mm. don't really understand what product does i mean how do you go about solving that problem mm. that's what well, i was going to ask yeah yeah, I guess, it, look, it, it depends a little bit, as we said earlier, on the stage of the business and the early stages of a young business. Actually, you don't want that clarity so much. You actually want people who are sort of jack of all trades, master of none and and find their way through this and yeah. live comfortably in, in an uncertain environment where where you've got a white sheet of paper and you, you, mm. you, you've got to make sense, sense of it all. Um, but I think there's a sort of constant polite education going on um, in, in more mature businesses, perhaps product is still fighting for that seat at the top table. 
Um, I, I think I was fortunate enough at, at ESS to, to have had an open door. The, the Capita legacy was actually to be a product-led business. And so there was a, a great deal of understanding mm. what product did. But the nuances were a little bit different. You know, should, mm. should product own the P&L? Could, could, could it be the whole P&L, as in the cost base as well, when actually there was a separate technology organization that made the decisions on where stuff would be hosted and therefore, you know, had control over the cost base. And so those, those are the, um, I think, the nuances. But, but you know, you, you work together, you talk about this at the leadership team, you talk about it with your team and, and you, you, you agree uh, phases of evolution. Um, I find there's a really useful um, organizational maturity framework. It's called CMMI. Um, it's, a, it's one of those sort of standards and it spells out generically what the different stages of um, mm. uh, maturity are within a given function in a business and how initially, you know, sort of a bit of a free for all, but the more mature function gets, the more it is actually run by data and decisions are made based on data and you have a fair amount of processes and the processes are documented and you've got a whole spectrum in between and I think it's it's bringing that to light and um, and actually making that very transparent where you are on that continuum is, is a helpful framework to, um, mm. to, to demonstrate where we've come from but there's still room to improve mm. To, uh, as much as is um, appropriate for that business at that stage, yeah. Because yeah. uh, because yeah. often you know you don't yeah. you don't want to create processes for process sake and then be hamstrung no. because you've introduced three stage gates and you go oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah no, very interesting hmm. it's a very good point yeah. yeah have you I mean uh, Carolyn have you experienced that as you're recruiting for businesses that the product uh, has a different standing in different organizations or am I on my own with that observation? No, no, I think you're right. And I agree about that whole education piece and how people have a, have a career in product and rather than just falling into it, it's, oh, this is what I want to start doing. And there's accreditation uh, for it, etc. But I agree with you about the variance in, in size of business and how they perceive product because a scale up you have to do a bit of everything mm. and whereas the big businesses it's very clearly defined where your role sits and, and in which part you're looking after product wise right. where you could be the only product in the entire business product manager uh, so you have to deal with everything so I, I agree with you on the variant um, but yeah it's obviously you know business analysts and how that can be a transfer into product isn't it? And it's that kind of sort of doing that into, into the whole world of products. So it's a really interesting point. And I, and I totally agree with you. I do find the same. Hmm. But um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so for example, one, one um, a colleague of mine in the, in my product team had uh, come into product from a customer services role. He had known his customers inside out and he had known our product yes. inside out yes. because he would answer customers help desk questions and he had yeah. then worked very hard to become a team leader in that function. So he learned a little bit about, you know, seeing maybe the bigger context. Then yeah. he became a, a junior product owner and worked his way up to now senior product manager. Fantastic. Fantastic. But there is somebody who has that natural curiosity and mm. wants to learn and, uh, and finds a path and you know it's mm. it's it's like a sponge you know you just sort of yes. feed pe mm. people like that who you know just feed them more opportunities and, yeah. and give them feedback and give them that time yeah yeah i, I mean, mean we're, we're we're from a world of recruitment where everyone pretty much falls mm. into recruitment i i know very few people who go yes that's what i want to do when i leave school you know it's it's very much everyone sort of falls into it so I uh, totally understand that I'd, kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, we did say, you know, that with that similarity, and obviously you mentioned the framework. I know exactly the maturity framework you're talking about. And there are a couple of others that follow kind of similar lines within product. 
And I bet Karen agrees. I wish we had something similar in like recruitment when you're going into businesses, because as you say, it is quite clear. It is something that you can go to the business and go, this is kind of, you know, where we are moving mm. along there. Whereas often there's nothing kind of standard, I don't think, within recruitment. But um, but it is, it is right. You get a lot of people who move into recruitment from other areas and yeah there's nothing wrong with that it's, it is no, it is the nature all. of certain roles particularly yeah. as you said product you know there's so many areas that touch on different aspects of product that you know you can move into for which kind of brings me on to my next question uh, you know you've touched on this before that you know in business in certain business you've been in you know you've had to pick up everything you know you've had to be all things the kind of everybody how do you kind of protect yourself in those circumstances and, and kind of look after your mental health? Mm. Oh, right. Okay. Gosh, gosh. I mean, we've just come out the other end of a big pandemic, haven't we? Mm. So I think uh, that was unprecedented, wasn't it? But also, mm. um, I, I mean, I alluded to the, the tremendous amount of business change that happened um, when, when our business was carved out from, from Capita and changed hands twice within 10 months. Um, mm -hmm. th those sort of programs are almost unstoppable and you don't want to be the one who stands in the way and says, sorry, I'm out of breath. <laughs> but, um, but in a way, you know, only you yourself can look after yourself and mm -hmm. say, and take responsibility and say, this is my limit or you know i i have something alongside work that gives me pleasure i think the spectacularly unprecedented situation with lockdown was that we didn't really have anything else to do right i mean we couldn't go out we couldn't go on holidays we were at home anyway you couldn't even say oh sorry i've got to do the school run couldn't even say that right yeah. so um you know the temptation was very much to just assume that everybody was available all the time just at the end of a team's bucket mm. thing. um but um yeah i mean there's sort of two aspects to this that might be worth us chatting about one is how do you protect yourself but how as a leader you also make sure that you set the right examples and um mm. make sure that your team doesn't keel over and doesn't get sucked up into unhealthy behavior. Mm. And um, actually the two are connected, aren't they? Because mm. you can't <laughs> credibly look after people and, and always say, you know, just take it easy and, mm. you know, limit your hours when actually at the same time, you're also sending emails on Sunday night, you know, so, so yes. you know, yeah. there's, there is, you've got to live what, what you preach. Um, mm. But, uh, uh in my career i've i've come close to burnout twice and mm. um uh, trust me i know the signs and the signs mm. are typically for, for me that i start kicking the dog yeah so it doesn't come out at work it comes out when i'm offline as it were and mm. i get very short-tempered and don't have much time and patience with people around me that are normally really dear to me mm. That's my big warning sign of when I know, oof, oof, overstepped it a little bit. But I think, it, look, I, I think it all comes down to priorities um, and and the world of work is no different here from what you do at home. You can't, um, mm. in, in my native German language, we say you can't dance at all weddings at the same time. And <laughs> you've got to pick and choose. So I think in, in English, oh, the, like uh, the, the, the idiom isn't quite so nice. I think you choose your battles, right? Yeah, we pick our weddings, but uh, you guys mm. pick your battles. But let's not talk about the mm. war, shall we? Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the um no but I, you know there have been times when i had to spell out to my boss look you've mm. asked me to do this long list of things but my capacity is this mm. you've got to choose what we prioritize into that capacity for the next week or two or three help me please because i yeah. cannot and likewise um Often these sort of programs span several functions. So it might actually be worth your while 
discussing it as a team and say, well, look, mm. as a team, we've got a finite capacity, but our work stack is this. How do we prioritize mm -hmm. this? Which is actually a thought process, which is very familiar to product people who work in development teams with the developers. <laughs> you've got a two week sprint. You've only got time for so many story points or design points mm. or whatever your currency is. So only so many hours in the day to you and me. And you've got to decide what adds most value to our customers first. And that's what we're going to do first. It doesn't mean that we don't do the other things. It just means we do them next or later. And that yeah. sort of constant recalibration of your personal roadmap now, next, later applies to your work stack too. And I think there is no shame in being really honest about this is, you know, this, the, 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 you know these are the choices. It's ultimately about choices. Nobody is yeah. served uh, well if, um, if people in your team queue over. But um, coming back to how do you make sure that um, you create a healthy environment, not just for yourself, but for others too, it is about these little gestures. So if you know that somebody isn't working on a Friday, for example, well, don't bombard them on the Friday with all the emails <laughs> that you want them yes. to see on Monday morning. You know, it's, it, you know, that's just sort of being respectful, especially when you're in a sort of remote working environment where you don't actually yeah. see people. You only see them when they're on camera, but you yeah. don't see them when they're off camera, right? Mm. Whereas in the office, you do you do know what people look like when they come into the office and how they crawl out yeah, exactly. at the end of the day yeah so um or um you know we worked um with our developers in india who work in a different mm. time zone so mm. you, you know, and the time zones would only overlap so much it's mm. unfair to expect the indian colleagues to be there until late into their night mm. just because that's convenient for me when it's my leisurely afternoon here in the uk that, yeah. that's not on it's not on to uh, regularly schedule a management meeting at eight in the morning when you know that people have other commitments to get mm. kids mm. ready for homeschool or real school or whatever it is and that's been mm. articulated several times it's those acts of respect to work around around um, people's you know other things that make us a human but then mm. um, uh, you know coming back to the the whole mental health um aspect i don't know how you found it during the lockdown period in particular or now that we working remotely has become very much the norm now mm -hmm. um it is ever so easy to just sit at your desk the whole time and when you yeah. go into one call and the next call you're very task focused you just yeah. go straight into talking about the problem and then you hang up on the next call and and, and you never have time actually to connect with mm. your colleagues. So, no. um, you know, one, one thing that I have found really helpful is to actually allow a little bit of venting time at the top of a call. Let's just see how everybody is. What have you been up to? You know, the, uh, the typical English conversation about the weather. <laughs> we can never be <laughs> happy enough, whether it's too hot or too Always. cold. Yeah, Always. but also, yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, we learn so much about each other because I see where you're based, um, your background, your, yeah. where you're based in your office gives me so many clues. Those are really fantastic conversation starters. Um, the amount of times that my my team have got to know my cat when she decides to sit bang in front of <laughs> um, in front of the camera on my keyboard. Did you know these are natural conversation starters? Allow time for this to happen because it actually allows for a better connection and you get to know each Absolutely. other a little bit better but i also scheduled special times for calls when we talked about nothing in particular I had virtual mm. team lunches for example you know when you're in a fr frantic recruitment drive as we were caroline with one person mm. after another joining you how do you introduce people you know normally you would go out for a drink or have a meal or whatever in a virtual environment we've got to sort of think a little bit differently so so mm -hmm. we had virtual team lunches where we talked about nothing in particular people could come and go as they wish to um absolutely no That's problem and the different and the different um permutations of people who were on these calls also made each one different feel different yeah. you know there was no yeah. agenda no free form no hierarchies and you know but um the other thing i also put in place was um don't laugh, um, the Care Bear Initiative. <laughs> so 
So each each of my teams had a had elected or asked for a volunteer, didn't matter who they were, to be the care bear for that team. I found it really important that um, people in the team had an informal way of just confiding in somebody yeah. with whatever bothered them, whether it was the workload, their manager, maybe a disagreement with a colleague, maybe something that's going on at home, just or a concern about something else hmm. entirely, right? That, that doesn't matter. Yeah. But just somebody that wasn't your line manager, but yeah. you could still have an element of trust. And so um, each of the teams had nominated a care bear and in informal conversations would take place with it within the teams um you know at a pace to be chosen by by the teams themselves mm. and once a month myself and the care bears we came together and without breaching confidentiality we talked generically about the health of the team um when there was acute need for me to intervene and and help somebody out because they were really struggling then of course you know that that was like a um a first aid call you know, then of course mm. I'd, I'd drop everything and, and make sure, make sure that I, I give the, the person in question mm. the support that they needed. But um, but uh, often actually we were able to resolve a few things ourselves and and you know gradually, I hope, um, made everybody feel safe and listened to and and valued and cared for. And that I think that that's really what that is, right? We, no, I love we, that. We, we, we're, we're not just bodies, you know, in this, it's easy to forget. Remember, Caroline, we hired so many people in such a short so space of time. It, it would be so easy to, to revert into a sort of conveyor belt mentality of just bodies to fill a spreadsheet. But that's not, that's not how you want to work. And that's how no. I don't want to work. And that's how the that's not how I work, work, right? No, yeah. that's, that's not yeah. how I work yeah. as well. Absolutely. If you've got 14 product managers, I think we did at one point across India and the UK, you fill one, but what's the next person look like? It's not just we need 14 of the same people. We need one robot. No, 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 no. Yeah, individuals yeah. with individual sure. skill set. And talking about ESS, I remember it vividly, you know, how crazy it was, because it wasn't just you, obviously, I was looking after, it was about four or five other teams, as well as setting up the ATS. So it was a crazy time. And I remember Doran Marks, who obviously uh, was uh, my manager at the time, we used to sit and work, work. So if we had no calls and we were just doing recruitment, we'd sit and work and be online with each other. So if we wanted to talk, we could go, oh, have you seen this? Or what do I do? You know what I mean? And we were there for oh, each other. Oh, so you had so a camera running running on the, yeah. on the side and that's how you yeah. connected through the lockdown yeah. period? Okay. Yeah. And it was yeah. so important. And, you know, if you needed to go, it wasn't like we were watching each other. It was just, you know, I need a bit, I just, let's be online and be present. Oh, that's talk. lovely. That's a lovely yeah, and, yeah. And I wish Ian, I had thought of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Ian was really good as well. His his sort of weekly yeah. catch-ups were brilliant, really supportive. You know, everyone had yeah. a minute to, to really voice what they were doing yeah. and, and going through everything. I thought that was really important. But yeah, I remember it was a really crazy time. Yeah. But do you not think um in this period, if again we try and do the product thing and reflect and learn um mm. the amount of tooling and the the leaps and bounds that the tooling that we now use for collaboration mm. has come on board mm. you know not only can we do video calls with some acceptable quality now we, we no longer look mm. like pixelated selves of <laughs> of, of each other <laughs> we can also chat we can change our background we can record and then share the recording we can have our conversation mm. transcribed so people can cut and paste it into something else. Isn't that phenomenal? The dimensions mm -hmm. that we now have at our disposal to communicate are actually mm -hmm. in many ways much richer than mm -hmm. we had in the sort of office only days. Do, do you not think? Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. remember there used to be that meme that used to go around about video conferencing and you'd have the different types of people who'd be on a video conference. You'd always be the one who's always on mute or the one who doesn't do it. You couldn't do that now because the etiquette has changed completely and everyone's so yes. ingrained. I, you know, you wouldn't accidentally yeah. have somebody knocking themselves on camera when they're sat there shirtless in the middle of a meeting because <laughs> they didn't expect to be. And things like that. I Just don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah the, the whole kind, as you said, it, the, the shift has changed sort of culturally as well as sort of tooling, I think, towards mm -hmm. towards being 
more online but you, you know you mentioned it that does have some drawbacks as well um i mean yeah. it's a big and even today i've seen three or four posts on linkedin in tech at the moment of tech teams should be going back to the office to collaborate and i did feel a bit sorry because one recruiter put something up earlier about this and was then piled on for about, for about half the day um but Oops. It, is there sort of a similar debate in product about, you know, with the amount of collaboration, should there be a return to the office, you know, at least a few days a week, or is it more kind of accepted to be remote? Well, what's important to me at in the ESS setting uh, was that I, I have people close to where my customers are and my users are. So certain roles to, to locate them in India didn't work for me because our customers mm. were UK only. But within the UK, within the school sector, you've got so many different types of schools. You've got nursery schools and secondary schools and academies and local authority maintained and then the Welsh language schools and schools in Northern Ireland work slightly differently. Again, I actually quite liked having my team dispersed so that you know, we could have a representative sample and, and, you know, temperature check of our customers with relative ease. Had we all been in the same location, come from the same kind of background, we would have possibly become a little bit narrow in our yeah. focus mm. and made too many assumptions. Um, but, but look, I think, um, I think the important thing is with, when you work in a sort of, SaaS agile development with autonomous development teams. You want the product manager, the product owner, and the technical um, team, that, that unit of eight, 10 people, you want them to feel really connected with one another. And that unit is the smallest unit or in which work gets done. They need to be comfortable with how, what's, what makes them most productive. It's not for me to prescribe well, you all need to be in the Bedford office or you all need to be remote or you need to be meeting up once once a week in person or whatever, but no more than X because otherwise my travel uh, expenses go through the roof. Uh, you know, it's it's not for me. It's, it's for that team to together decide what works for them and mm. and for me to support that and make it happen and create that environment where, where that works. But uh, yeah. But, but you know that yeah uh, different cultures different time zones mm. all these um yeah. things pose different challenges on different teams yeah. i don't think there is a one size fits all and even throughout the the cycles of a major program you will find phases when you want to be more closely together because actually working with sticky notes and you know pizza boxes and all that <laughs> is <laughs> is more conducive to, to creative energies um Whereas there are phases perhaps where you need to be a bit more head down and, and work more independently. But even here, the collaboration tools that we now have where you can have uh, whiteboards, shared whiteboards, and they stay mm -hmm. there. Nobody wipes them off because they're digital and in the cloud. Um, amazing stuff, you know, that's come on mm -hmm. so much. And I would like to put the hypothesis forward that we're actually now much more productive in the sort of product and tech world. Um, with this remote working than when we're in the office because it is much more focused and because everything is digital information can get shared and multiplied with ease um, and and even people who haven't been able to to take part live can easily catch up you know mm -hmm. Be because it's, because yeah, it's all recorded and and documented somewhere yeah, I don't see any companies on LinkedIn, sorry, John, to complain about productivity. I've never seen anybody go online and say, I'm struggling with my workforce and what their output is. Everyone is, there's, there's just nothing about it because productivity is still still really high and always has been through remote working because people have that flexibility. And I totally agree, one size doesn't fit all. And it's, it's really changing that mindset of businesses that, some people just are better at home than coming into the office. Some people want to be in the office five days a week. That's perfect. Let them do that, isn't it? Mm. 
and just have that flexibility, which I think a lot of companies are adapting to. They will just some. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting point that you made there, though. Uh, and I think, I mean, I came off a web conference earlier today, and two minutes after hanging up, I had a transcript of the conversation I'd had with that person. And I mean, that was amazing. And it, if you think, I, I mean, you don't really think about being able to catch up easily as a benefit. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's ever mentioned that to us before, Caroline, have they? Because we, no. we do talk about this to, to sort of most of most of the guests in the podcast. I, maybe that's the, the education bit coming out when, when, when you're trying to catch up when you've missed the day of school. And I think, but it is really true. You, you have mm -hmm. much more easy access to information when you're not there probably than ever. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, you, would, really you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to catch up on everything you missed because then you would never hmm. cut, catch up, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but um, if there was a big team meeting, for example, that you missed a big team call mm. where results were announced or new joiners were introduced or whatever it is, mm. you know, and that's an hour long, you can probably schedule the catch up for that. And it's probably mm. worth your while and you can even fast forward, right? And you can yeah. skip through things and you can yeah. run it at double speed or whatever it is, yeah? Mm. Um, are there any advice or words of wisdom you give to somebody who is going to be managing a multi-site team? Oh, just to take time to get to know your mm -hmm. people, get time to get to know your people and what the different um, needs are of different people in different sites. Um, also get a feel for just how, how diverse your team might be. Depends just how, yeah. how multi-sited it is, but multi-sited just within England, for example, I'm sure feels different from multi-sited with teams dotted across the globe, because mm -hmm. there you've also got the, the added dimension of cultural differences, maybe religious differences, um, different climate zones you know mm. <laughs> when somebody sits there with their winter coat on the other person is melting <laughs> or <Yeah>. has to <laughs> has to bring everything inside because they've got a big uh, big rain shower coming or you know or they they take different time off during the year because their religious yeah. festivals fall on different yeah. days um yeah but uh, i think it's it's wonderful to have this diversity in the team and it makes for a richer team You've just got to give it a little bit of time to hear each other and and give everybody an opportunity to share where they're coming from and come out of their shell. And if this is a, a larger team with lots of participants, not everybody likes to sort of put themselves forward, right? And put themselves in mm. the middle of it all. But uh, it, it takes a little bit of time. But over time, you, I, I think, well, I think academically it's been shown that more diverse teams tend to be better performing than mm. than um, teams that are not so diverse um, yeah, and, and and you know and that's because i think we all in <laughs> in life of brian we're all individuals i'm not <laughs> but it's a it's a bit you know we, we celebrate our individuality and mm. we like it when yeah. we're listened to and when when we're being valued for who we are and what we bring to the party, naturally you would feel more engaged in an environment like that, wouldn't you? So, yeah. and that, that goes both ways, you know, it isn't just as the manager, how can I increase productivity of my team? It is about how can I make this a, an exciting and engaging place to work? We spend so much time at work. Let's make this count and let's make it an mm -hmm. enjoyable experience for everyone. Yeah, I love that because it's it's not just mm -hmm. box ticking and having a diverse team. It's allowing them to be a diverse team, essentially, and yeah, yeah, yeah enabling yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, before we go on to the the sort of final question that we go through with everybody, uh, Karen, do you have any other questions for Susie? I don't. It's been so interesting, Susie. Really mm. interesting. No, I'm, uh, I'm fine. So Susie, our last question, as I said, is, is something that we do like to ask everybody. And um, we, we usually keep it as a surprise to get to get as much of a, a, oh, a kind of real reaction as possible. You should, if you should you add were... a drum roll here in the end. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
If you were prime minister for the day, what policy would you introduce? <laughs> oh my God. Policy in which, give me a clue, which aspect of life, because um, be at the any, moment, any, any being prime minister of, of this country is a tall yeah. order. I, uh, you know, I've often wanted to be prime minister, but not today. <laughs> um, um, no, but I think, I mean, I, I think, What's going through my mind more and more often, often actually accompanied with um, shivers of uh, anxiety, is the whole climate catastrophe that we're steering towards. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I'm a problem solver by nature, but I'm a little bit running out of ideas on how to solve this one. Because on the one hand, we want to maintain growth and, you know, we all have jobs and companies that drive growth and we're doing this for investors mm -hmm. who want to make more and more money as employees we want to have more and more money so we can satisfy our consumer needs and buy that bigger car have that more exciting holiday you know have something fancy to wear go out for a meal those sort of pleasures in life we also want that as well but the you know we we can't close our eyes from from the fact that the more growth we want, mm. the more we're actually hammering this planet. Mm. And I can't quite see, I haven't quite figured out whether it is possible, which is the big hope at the moment, that technology is the enabler to have the best of both worlds, to keep maintaining the lifestyle we've become very used to in, in the developing world mm. without impacting nature to a detrimental point. I it's, yeah. It sounds too okay. good to be true, doesn't it? It, it does sound mm -hmm. too good to be true because ultimately the, the natural resources on this planet are finite. Mm. Even if we think we can maybe put solar panels up on the roof, the silver and what have you that's contained in them it's finite. There is only so much silver to go around. Or the, the lithium that we need for the batteries for electric vehicles, there's only so much going around. Mm -hmm. Will this will this be enough? And will the energy we need to recycle those materials when they come to the end of their useful life, will this be a zero-sum game? Mm. That So if, if I was the prime minister, I'd put everything I've got into solving and understanding that problem. And I wouldn't want to do it on my own. I would want to hook up with people from here. We come again, the diverse team, right? With people yeah. from different disciplines <laughs> and different countries and cultures and also involve um, countries in, in other parts of the world that are not as fortunate as we are mm. to live in, in so much um, surplus, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. And particularly as a lot of those countries are where those finite min minerals are coming from when you look at things like batteries and, and things like that. So they're going to be disproportionately affected by it anyway. And it's one of those things where you can, you've grown and you've gone, oh yeah, we've reached this point. Then how much can you tell someone else you can't grow because we've used up all the resources you know you now yeah, no well, longer have is, that right this is so an, how mean, do you is, redress that balance is difficult we, isn't it? we are miffed because at a hot weekend like we just had we don't have air conditioning but mm. there are loads and loads of people who don't even have clean water to drink right mm. yeah. so it's a bit rich of us to prescribe a way of living to people who don't even have the bare essentials um, and so, so this is what I, I mean agree. by involving lots of different people in solving this problem, because the solution may well have to look different for different mm. parts of the world at different times. Um, but, but that is the number one thing to crack, in my view. Mm. Um, and I can't quite see how any other policy that any country would come up with, not just this country, can't. It, 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 ha it has to. It has to solve that. That climate problem first and the other policies should follow and support whatever solution you come up with if you just go siloed into health and housing and you know whatever the, the different defense mm -hmm. whatever the different categories budget pots are i don't i don't i think you'll you miss mm -hmm. the point i love that answer right. 
it's a big, big, big speech at the end of a long day. <laughs> really good. I love that answer. That was brilliant. Yeah. But even the political system that we have should be questioned. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because turkeys have never voted for an early Christmas. Nobody is going to vote for, we're going to cut consumption. Yeah. We're not going to fly on holiday this year, right? Or ever again. Nobody's going to vote for that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, did you see? I, I, I can't yeah. solve the problem. It's, it's one that needs system change in terms of the political system, the economic system, how we think of money going around all the time, and actually our own lifestyle and what we yeah. rate and what we want to leave behind, what legacy we want to leave behind. And that's, uh, oh gosh, this is a big topic, hey? <laughs> How did we get no, into this? It's a very this? big topic. <laughs> no, we always do this, this at is, the end, yeah. don't we? Yeah, because we, we always get the best thing. answers. Because Yeah, because everyone's got things that are, you know, quite dear to them. And it's always interesting to see what, you know, what that is. But, I mean, you can't really get much bigger than the climate crisis right. at the moment, can you say? Great, great answer. Yeah. I love that answer. Fantastic. Um, Susie, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah. Um, and, thank you so uh, much. Yeah. And uh, thank you very much for, for answering our questions. Thank Thanks you so much. Bye. Bye. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Small Podcast. We'll be back with even more guests discussing their careers in private equity and how they met the challenges of working in high-change environments. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify. The Small Consultancy is an in-house recruitment support to PE and VC-backed scale-ups, startups and carve-outs. We provide in-house recruitment support to companies going through periods of growth and change. We've worked with PE-backed scale-ups across industries such as defence, energy, green tech and edtech for companies including Jane's, Breathe Energy and for trade associations such as the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, BBCA. We understand how critical it is to get the right talent in place to meet growth targets and funding cycles. If you'd like to discuss how we can help you grow, please get in touch.